When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So you want to be a rock and roll star? No? Well, how about a podcast star? Well, as it turns out, there's a new all-in-one platform just for you. It's called Anchor, and it's the easiest way to make a podcast. And check this out. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And then Anchor will distribute the podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and, you know, everywhere else in, uh, in podcast land. And what's even better, you can actually make money from your podcast. Go figure. Uh, no minimum listenership on that. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So go ahead. Download the free Anchor app right now or go to anchor.fm to get started. So what are you waiting for? Podcast stardom is within your reach. I'm Leo Phillips, host of This Must Be The Gig. We're a weekly podcast that documents everything about the world of live music. Speaking with choreographers, costume and set designers, the people who run beloved venues and festivals, and, of course, speaking with musicians about that one gig that changed their lives. Get your peek behind the curtain at consequenceofsound.net, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Hey, welcome to another edition of Kyle Meredith with. It's an audio interview series presented by WFPK Independent Louisville at WFPK.org. Consequence of Sound and the Consequence Podcast Network. If you're not a subscriber to the series, take that moment, hit that subscribe button before we jump into this. Before we jump into one of my all-time favorite interviews, you can subscribe anywhere you get your favorite podcasts from. That includes iTunes and Apple Podcasts and Spotify and YouTube. So hit that button and, uh, and keep up with us and the uh, multiple interviews we put out every single week. I'm Kyle Merritt. Today, my guest is Ian Asbury of The Cult. I just said this ended up being one of my all-time favorite interviews. Uh, but one, because The Cult is one of my all-time favorite bands. And getting to talk to Ian, not just about his music, but specifically about the album Sonic Temple that came out 30 years ago this year. It came out in 1989. And we get to take not just a deep dive into the songs, but the influences uh, that go beyond musical influences that all wrap around to make up the, uh, as Ian says, the musical DNA of this record. And that includes talking about songs like Firewoman and Sweet Soul Sister and Wake Up Time for Freedom, as well as a bit like New York City. Not just a song title on the record, but a place on the globe that was a very big influence on Ian and the band at the time. There is talk of painters and filmmakers and poets and writers, and the timeline stretches from the very early days to the very present we're in as the band embarks on sold-out after sold-out shows, not only in celebration of this record, but all of their music. Without further ado, it's Kyle Meredith with The Cult. Hi, Kyle. This is Ian Asprey calling. Let, let's see. 30 years of Sonic Temple. It's about to get its big box set release and, uh, and, and an ongoing mm. tour along with this. 1989, man. This is uh, this is quite a while ago. I guess you've had to jump back in this record to get ready for the tour, right? 
To a degree. I mean, we have been playing some of the songs since they were recorded. There's probably like maybe two or three that we haven't played in our set. And we've definitely pulled songs out for a while. We pulled out songs like Firewoman, retired them for a couple of years. Songs like Edie, we retired for a few years just to try and keep it fresh, you know. But the intention of this was really, it was kind of twofold. One is that I think at the very core, the cult is a, is a live performance driven band and we really grew up coming out of club scene into the you know post-punk post-modern alternative period into kind of evolved into a you know went through a, a phase of uh well, i wouldn't say it was a phase <laughs> dna of uh you know psychedelic and harder rock music blues-based rock music and then back into sort of post-modern meandering into that so we've we've kind of you know meandered through the past 30 years and the intention of this was to continue that as a live band that's what your principal function is in many ways and everything that that you know implies and then um the other idea was that beggars banquet who are a mother record label in the uk you know they wanted to to do a reissue of the album and i've never been a great nostalgist or a, a great celebrator of anniversaries i mean i think this is the very first time that the cult as an entity has come out and said we're supporting acknowledging 30 years of this band you know for the first time and in some ways we wanted to use sonic temple as a platform to link to the dna of the cult you know it's it's a very very important record in the cult's canon and we wanted to acknowledge not only the songs on that record but the influences and um and how they've kind of continued throughout the last whatever amount of years it's been i'm not keeping count (laughs) I'm glad you did. Uh, I'm glad you are taking that moment too, because it, you know it, it isn't just one of the, uh, the most important in your own catalog. I think this is one of the the most important records of the '80s, and it did show. Um, and and I, I should say beyond the '80s, just the fact that it came out in the '80s. But um, because of what you were saying there, you all had done so many different styles leading into this record, and 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 maybe this. Yes as it's been written, was one of the first times you sort of doubled down because Electric, I, I guess, had kind of started uh, in that direction. Not that the two records sound alike, but but it kind of was the first time you said, yeah. you said, all right, let's go further that direction. Why was that? I think it was just a desire to continue to grow, to not repeat ourselves. That was very important. And also to really kind of explore guitar-based, guitar-driven record explore that side of ourselves a little bit more because it was something that was really blossoming in our live sets you know we, i mean we kind of when we first started out we had pretty much two drum beats a tribal beat and a four 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 and a four beat you know like everybody else at the time because we all came out of punk rock nobody could play that was a very easy beat to play right. and everything was derivative of i guess you know peter hook because he wrote these incredible melodies in joy division and everybody was like look look at what they did you know we can apply that to what we do so we kind of evolved out of that and at that time you know if you look at the images or you know anything about the band sudden death cult fear of hate mm-hmm. that period it was a really interesting time it was almost like you know britain was in a very it was in a political upheaval <clears throat> you know the campaign for nuclear disarmament was was in full swing it was just pre-1984 it was just pre-orwellian you know there was a band called Crass who were doing a countdown every album they would do you know like four years to 1984 three years to 1984 <laughs> and then they split up in 1984 kind of signifying in many ways that, that uh, 1984 was year zero you know it's like the end of 20th 20th century and it'd be kind of the beginning of the 21st century so i guess in some ways seeing a lot of this culture was being discarded after the post-punk and punk movement which kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater in many ways you know like 
blues music kind of went away for a minute and as a, as a major influence in rock music and um, something was all very important to me and um, we wanted to incorporate that more into it and plus the psychedelic influences um, you know psychedelic in the broadest terms everything from Pink Floyd to even the Gun Club you know who were sort of a, had a, a psychedelic uh, it's certainly a desert peyote essence you know uh, what Jeffrey was conjuring up so we were just making it up as we went along. There was no rules. And when people told us there was rules, it's like, absolutely not. I mean, when we made the transition from, from death cult to the cult, people were like, what? What are you guys doing? It was like, we're done with that. That's finished. We've done it. And the whole movement was kind of, it, you know, it was fizzling out. It was fizzling out. And there was so much more happening. MTV was coming up. And 1984 was the year that Ridley Scott did the Olympic commercial with a girl throwing a javelin. Mm -hmm. You know, it was very Orwellian dystopian you know people at the desk and this javelin and we arrived at la in la in 1984 the opening day of the olympics so it's kind of like the beginning of apple beginning from computers the beginning we could sort of see the 21st century coming and the 60s seemed so far away and it was such a taboo to dive into 60s music but there were these kind of fringe clubs in london where everybody would gather and i mean everybody you'd see like everybody from you know jeffrey lee pierce to blixer bargeld to Susie sue to robert smith they all played this club called alice in wonderland which was a psychedelic rock club and all they played was everything probably like i want to say 65 through 71 but it was really choice psychedelic cuts like a lot of great british bands i mean what pink what nick mason is doing right now with saucer full mm -hmm. of secrets mm -hmm. was kind of the essence of the club and it was an incredible energy because it was like so unlike anything else that was happening in art and music at that time because it, it wasn't so much revisionist it was just like i guess the archetypal elements of you know this the late 60s and the early 70s rock bands what they were they were seemed to be much more connected to the soil and the the ether you know there were the the information was coming in through a different channel it, was, it wasn't coming through the internet it wasn't coming through the phones you had to actually go out and experience it like uh, a lot of the songs were written through travel you'd go to a place and then you'd be inspired and you know you weren't sitting at home imagining what it'd be like through a book or a computer you know you'd, you'd go see it through your own eyes and I think it was just a continuation for the cult. So, yeah, I mean, I was always pushing for something new, something different, something fresh. And Sonic Temple was a moment where, I guess, a lot of things converged, a lot of, a lot of uh, <clears throat> influences converged. And, um, you know, we were very aware of what was happening in Seattle. We'd had a, a relationship with Seattle since, like, 85, 86. We played the Paramount Theater in Seattle. Seashell Sanctuary was a top 40 hit in Seattle, which was mm -hmm. strange because the rest of the country, it wasn't. It's more of a college situation. Uh, college radio and like people like K-Rock were playing it. And so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot in it. Yeah. <laughs> there's a well, lot in it. So I, I was going to kind of seg there for a second, too, because Firewoman ended up in the movie Singles, you know, based in Seattle with Cameron Crowe there. So genre, as we're kind of hitting around here, was really important back then. We, we talk about it differently today than we did back then. Like when you in, in the course. fan scene, you were either a punk or a metalhead or a goth or, you know, an alternative, whatever. It was far more niche. Right. It was far more niche. But, but, yeah. but the yeah. cult seemed to be the bridge to, to do, you know, be on tour with Metallica and also to be accepted by the Seattle guys, you know, in, in this coming of age movie that's meant a lot to that scene too uh i mean were yeah what did that look like to you at that moment did 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 you see it like that it was kind of strange because we like i said you know coming through um post-punk punk scene you're coming more out of an urban environment i mean we we came out of london the band was formed in brixton you know our neighbor nick cave lived around the corner mm -hmm. um you know the clash 
the Clash lived close. Uh, Cosmo Vinyl, the guys who worked with the Clash and Flea, the road crew, they all lived in vicinity, proximity to where we lived, you know. So we didn't, I don't think we were that self-conscious. It was really more about like discovering the new music that was coming up and, and just really fans. I mean, going to see bands play, like seeing Soundgarden at the Lingerie in 1988 or seeing Mother Love Bone before they came Pearl Jam, got close to Andrew, got close to Chris Cornell, those, seeing those guys. And they had very similar ideology. I mean, you know, it would have been very interesting to see what would happen with Mother Love Bone had they continued with Andrew because they were way more glam. I mean, they were... Mm-hmm. We saw them opening for Dogs the More. You know, they were like really glam rock. I mean, it was more like T-Rex. It was more like Freddie Mercury. You know, like Queen mixed with punk. I mean, it was very interesting music. And it was, it was so incredibly exciting and dangerous, you know, because you go out in the street dressed in your finery, you're immediate target for, you know, any kind of negative attention. So, um, I mean, we were traveling all over the world as well. So, um, plus our history, our lineage, um, Southern Death Call, I was opening for The Clash, Bauhaus, you know, we did shows with New Order, festivals, you know, festivals with Nick Cave on the bill, um, Gun Club was on the bill, um, you know, and, and then it just kind of evolved. The scene kind of evolved. It kind of, I think psychedelic music, psychedelic rock, probably The Doors was a very important connected tissue because The Doors really go, you talk about a bridge. The Doors really had everything in there. They had like hard blues. They had, you know, at times it could be hard rock and, uh, you know, folk, Spanish, flamenco, mm-hmm. um, you know, classical, jazz. I mean, with so many, you know, some of the songs were very brutal, brutal, <laughs> completely brutal, pagan, primal. And then some of the songs were incredibly sophisticated. And then they had moments of absolute beatific. You know, they really reached the zenith. They did grab the sun, you know. And that, I think they were such an important band. I know in Liverpool in 1980, one of the bands that was most influential, and you could see that in like Echo and the Bunnymen, for oh, example. Right. Yeah, of course. And Teardrop Explodes was The Doors. The Doors were a very, very important band in 1980, post-apocalypse now. So, you know, that was that was kind of a, an indicator, I think, for a lot of where we were going, because we were kind of like, I guess the guidebooks were the biographies that were written. We were and meeting people in the flesh. I mean, we opened for Iggy Pop and... I don't know what 86, 87. Then we went and opened for Bowie, and then we, you know, we did a tour with GNR opening for us, and that was an incredible year for for you know talking about diverse crisscrossing genres. I think it really changed when MTV decided to come up with 120 minutes headbangers oh. ball, yo MTV raps. They really began to segregate the genres, which wasn't the truth because when we were making Electric with Rick Rubin, we were immersed in the Def Jam world in their universe, you know, and were always hanging out with whomever was around, you know, like meet Noah Cool Jam who was 19 or, you know, hanging out with the Beasties or just being around hip hop and rock were way more together. In fact, the cult, I think three years ago, we did a couple of shows with Public Enemy, which really, to me, made a lot of sense. But, um, I think it's just fat, really, ultimately, the, the probably the, the bonding factor is fans of music, you know. And then somebody says, well, actually, you're, you have your own fans. You'd be like, what? <laughs> <laughs> How's that possible? I'm busy focused on getting the music, going to the shows. I mean, I was I still have a voracious appetite to discover new music. It's just what's in the day, you know. It's, that's what that's what gets me out of bed is when you hear an artist who's really engaged in what in their craft and they're doing it in a fully focused, fully realized way, you know, with no apparent agenda other than to make an excellent piece of work. And I don't know what the inspiration is. For example, you know, Tom York's uh, Anima, mm-hmm. which I love. I mm-hmm. think it's a, it's a genius. He's, he's a brilliant man, an incredible.
incredibly sensitive man and um, admire him greatly. There's so many great records have been made, like, you know, Tyler's Igor, brilliant, brilliant. You know, Billy Ellish is amazing. You know, there's so many incredible artists right now. Like, we were them at some point in our career. We were like, you know, teens evolving into young men, evolving into, you know, adult males. And we grew up on the road, traveling around capital cities throughout the world, you know, and um, by the time we were 25 or 26, we were, we were pretty burnt, you know, and you, you know, we were reading, no one here gets out alive. <laughs> one of the Bibles that were floating around and then eventually getting to meet Danny Sugarman and, and be immersed in the world of the doors with Manzarek and Krieger and, you know, and then going forward. But in many ways, that record was kind of like the tent pole that connected so many different areas which was evident when we did Gathering of the Tribes, mm-hmm. because that was kind of like an opportunity for me to say, here's some context as to where I think it's at. And um, a lot of people seem to agree with it, perhaps not uh, consciously, but certainly in terms of the energy of what you know we were trying to create with Gathering of the Tribes. In many ways, it was a window, again, you know, a gateway into the 21st century. So. And you nailed it. I mean, it was perfectly on, you know, on the spot, you know, everybody that was a part of that. It was, a, it was an amazing, very quickly, because, I mean, I came up with the idea in um, Rapid City, South Dakota. We were opening for Metallica. Out of that and a love affair with, with indigenous American culture and what was happening in the media, MTV, Life magazine had just done a piece on what, you know, um, subcultures are going to look like going into the 1990s. They were telling us, the marketers were telling us what it's going to be like. We were no longer telling people what it was going to be mm-hmm. like, you know, the audience. and that. We're being told, I mean, that the, the advertising agencies and the marketers and the, you know, the, the A&R people got, got incredibly sophisticated. They became embedded with artists and they began to influence almost like Jesuits or something, you know. They came into these communities of like raw creatives and started to influence their commercial doctrine and um you know so kind of saw it coming it, was, it felt very machiavellian and sinister and what mtv were trying to do you know to cut up right you're getting segregated now your mtv raps and, and 120 minute you know headbangers ball you guys are separate it's like well wait a minute we're not you know right. we're not separate we're all the same age we'll come from we may come from different backgrounds or different environments but we've definitely got a lot in common with each other so i saw that coming and i was like that doesn't feel right that we have to kind of grab our community back our music community and of course you know inspired by so many things going to live aid was a huge inspiration in 1985 being at live aid sitting between bob geldof and billy conley when queen were on stage in one of the boxes overlooking the stadium how can that not be an influence on right. on a 24 on year old you know 25 year old kid actually no i was young i was 23 i mean that blew my mind i could never seen anything like that before the response the audience responding the visceral energy was just profound and the unity and the sense of shared cause, you know, cause, C-A-U-S-E, um, not, not cause the artist, K-A-W-S. Yeah, but, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to kind of put into, I mean, that one of the things for the cult is it's always been people sit down and go like, you guys are full of contradictions and go like, yeah, I guess we are. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah constantly you know i love that there's a great interview with david bowie where the interviewer says i think it might be russell hart he says to him he says isn't that pretentious and bowie just turned around and goes like i've always been pretentious <laughs> darling you know and that was the kind of attitude it's like yeah it's contradictory we are contradictory that we're not doing it as a shtick it's a, there's an absolute sincere passion for music and culture and film and art and photography and acting and all the, all the crafts, all the visual arts, painting. There's a convergence of energy. I mean, we came of age at a time when we went to New York in 84 when Bowie, sorry, when um, Warhol and Basquiat were still active, you know?
dropped into that. We played the first gig we played in New York was at the Danceteria, and it was a Puerto Rican dance night, part a Puerto Rican party, and there was all these Puerto Rican kids staring at us, going like, "What is this? This isn't our music," and we were like. Sorry, we just we got booked this night. This is it. <laughs> but it was amazing to be immersed into that, you know, into that diversity and that you know, how complex it became in terms of cultural diverse images. And I was always breaking off to try and see artists like John Lee Hooker or Jerry Lee Lewis or Chuck Berry or you know whomever you could grab these great iconic unicorns. You know, Bob Dylan as well at the time. You know, to see them, to see them perform, and how magnificent they were. You know, just. In, in terms of raw energy and you know it was just exhilarating and that's kind of what keeps me going i guess in some ways is discovery you know uh, a, a, just a voracious appetite for being inquisitive and a lot of a lot of times you you come up against people that will tell you individuals that will tell you how it should be and that you've crossed over some lines which you shouldn't be crossing over and it's like well who are you to say what's your credentials <laughs> you know what are your credentials please please what are you basing this upon it's not a science project you know you hit new york there and i knew that was kind of important going into this record that i should note that uh, that same year that you all put out sonic temple you were also on uh, Derry, uh debbie harry's uh, record uh, backing her up on the on Love Light. Speaking of New York, it's it's yeah. hard to get more New York than that. No, that was, I mean that was kind of strange how that came. But I think it was Rodney uh, Bingenheimer introduced me to uh, Chris and, and uh, Debbie, and they were making. Debbie was doing a record with Mike Chapman, I believe, producing. It was very important because it produced a lot of British glam bands like Sweet and stuff like that. Uh, so a great British producer, lauded producer. And it was really interesting um, being around Chris and Debbie. I mean, an incredibly charismatic couple and um, incredibly high level of emotional intelligence, certainly authentic. And um, I was always looking for mentorship. I, sent, I think in some ways I always really enjoyed meeting artists who were a little bit older than me mm -hmm. that had more experience. And I just, I just asked them a thousand questions. <laughs> I just was always interested in, I still am, the opportunity to sit down with any artist and who's had a, a, a decent amount of time in it and, and done a, you know, a good body of work and you ask them questions, how do they maintain that harmonic balance between creativity and washing the dishes, you know? <laughs> it's like, I'm going to be a student, I'll be a student till the day I die. I don't definitely haven't mastered the craft yet, but yeah, it's like you're always in pursuit of that perfect piece, and and then you you make something you think's really good, and then you listen to it over and over and over again, and you're like, ah, this could change. Ah, I should have done it that way, and then but then you're into something else, so you know, right. just keep moving, and that's I guess one of the lessons I picked up along the road was like, don't 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 drive the car looking in the rearview mirror. You know? If you're constantly looking at the past for your answers, you're going to get stuck because the environment's changed. The way we communicate's changed. Being present in the present moment is, is a real gift to be able to receive the information and put it through your own filter. And there's, a, there's an incredible amount of creativity happening right now. You know, it's just everybody is doing something creative. I, I don't know anybody, certainly in my circle of friends, who are not creatives. All the different stages of career development, you know, some people have been around for a while, some people are just coming up, um, all in different fields as well. Mm -hmm. You know, photography, art, filmmaking, music, uh, fashion. But they all share the same passion and a desire to create and a desire to make the world a better place as well, a desire to address what is happening environmentally in society you know everyone seems to be really motivated to to get this thing together and i think that was one of the ideals of the late 60s generation certainly jim morrison was a sense of communion unity uh ritual space you know and create an energy that can transcend you know this western industrial complex conditioning that we're all get stuck in and uh, i'm very
very excited about what's happening in, uh, especially on the West Coast. The West Coast is West Coast is on fire right now in terms of um, like the, the energy in LA is, is incredible. I lived in New York for, for I've lived in New York in the eighties, the nineties, and the aughts, and uh, you know for different periods of time. Last time I was there for nearly four and a half years, and um, New York was until you know the, the glass and concrete went up and rent, rents became insane. New York was it. New York was Mecca, but L.A., I guess a lot of refugees from New York and other cultural capitals started to gravitate towards L.A. because it was a lot cheaper, easier, you know, cheaper lives. It's definitely changing now, but there's so many galleries, there's so many events. I mean, you're spoiled for choice, spoiled for choice. Like in my immediate vicinity, I live between the Hollywood Bowl and the Fonda Theater. Just, you know, there's so much going on. Yeah, when I heard... um... I talked to Kim Gordon not too long ago when I heard that, you know, she had left New yeah. York for L.A. And, and was doing just as much art out there. I was like, oh, yeah, no, that's you could tell that was the, that that's part of the sea change right there. That's a, a telltale yeah, absolutely. sign. And, that, and that's wonderful because Kim Gordon's a visionary creative. And uh, I really like her paintings. I think paintings uh-huh. are excellent. Absolutely. Um, actually, during um, when we did Sonic Temple, we were doing a TV show, like a filmed interview. I'm not quite sure where it was, but um I was there in like all the dope clothes I was wearing at the time, like totally done out. And uh, they walked out of this interview situation and I was like, oh, wow, such an honor to meet you guys. I love Daydream Nation. And I was just really, you know, I was pretty struck that they were standing right in front of me because I really admire them. And then when the interviewer sat down and said, uh, said, yeah, I showed them the Firewoman video. I said, did you like it? They were like, no. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, Oh, that was a drag. But then again, I, I understood. I understood why they, they, that might not fit in with their, you know, their, their view of, of culture and what it should be. But I think right now we've got to get into a place where artists, anybody who's doing something creative, we, that we unify, that there's not this kind of, Jesus Christ, intellectual bullying going on. You know, nobody knows more than anybody else. If you're, if you're, if you're, if you're sensitive in any way, you can learn so much from other people and just listen. And, you know, there's always a different perspective and it can enhance your own, your, your, your own perspective, your own lifestyle and affect very positively in a way around you. I used to go out my way to go into environments that were, you know, supposedly off limits. Like during Sonic Temple tour, the rave culture was coming up in the UK and I was going out to clubs, rave clubs and events. The energy was incredible and the music was changing as well, shifting, you know, Stan Roses were on the horizon and um, Happy Mondays and Charlatans and Spiral Carpets. Primal Scream were doing incredible work, still are. Um, it's a really vibrant scene. Bands like The Orb, you know, you know just pre, pre-massive attack. It was such an exciting time to go out, and that's where the energy was. And uh, I remember going to the Hacienda. Pete Hook actually took me to the Hacienda, and I was, like, dressed in, like, leather pants and cowboy hat, you know. And I walked in. I was only, like, 26 or something, and I walked in, and I felt so old. I was like, what? What is this? <laughs> Everyone's wearing, like, you know, dope haircuts, sneakers, and, and I was like, this is like New York. It's just jamming. It's rammed. It's, the energy was incredible. So I'd be sneaking off to these clubs and then going on stage and performing, you know, with the cult and then hitting whatever joint we could find, you know, three, four, five in the morning and uh, just immersing myself in that kind of hip-hop shows, you know. We used to blast NWA through the PA before we went on stage every night, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's just, it's like when to set a tone here, this is something we're really into. And, um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, I guess... A lot of context around the cult that haven't really, well, I think we're getting more into it now because mm-hmm. we're getting to more, there's a little bit of revisionism going on right now, you know. People are going, they did it first. And they're like, well, actually, not quite. They did it after a lot of other people did a lot of incredible work. I mean, nobody has the right to any real estate, cultural real estate in this. Everyone's been influenced by somebody, and that's okay. It's completely healthy to be 
open to other information than, than what you deem as, you know, what's going on in your head. It it's, just continues. It continues. It's not, it's not hard to draw, you know, the line from, you know, you all listening to NWA to, to what how the witch ended up sounding. Of course. With the drum loops and, yeah, you and got stuff it. like that. Yeah, it's, it makes perfect sense. It's not brain science. You know, it's not <laughs> brain surgery. You know, I mean, yeah, Rick Rubin produced the track. Matt Dyke, who did Paul's Boutique, who was a brilliant brilliant producer in fact we cut that track he he cut the beats and i used to hang out in matt's studio and in matt's studio santa monica boulevard were baskets lined up against the wall all these because he was friends with jean-michel yeah, wow. so there's all incredible baskets so that was made in that environment this funky studio in santa monica boulevard surrounded by baskets and wow. the beats kind of came from that and i learned the song that appeared in 94 called naturally high but that was it we just wanted to get that the street sound i mean both billy and i grew up in some pretty rough industrialized neighborhoods at various times of our lives you know sometimes we live in the suburban areas where you get the overspill from the major city situation but we lived in some pretty gritty places and um when you get to new york that was such an accelerator of that energy and you know that's for me where the energy was so i loved nwa i thought they were incredible when they came out and public enemy and run dmc africa bambar i love africa bambar thank, thank you to michael mcclaren for that all that Sweet Soul Sister, wake up time for freedom. You know, when you're talking about connecting the past to the present, it, it seems like, you know, there's a couple tracks right there, uh, different than what we're talking about musically. That's more thematically. Like, do you see those yeah. songs speaking to anything specific today? Well, certainly archetypal elements in the song. I mean, the idea of a city as a feminine entity, you know, Sweet Soul Sister, the idea of the philosophy and revolutionary culture, that is a that has emanated from Paris post situationism, the love of jazz music, all these incredible elements that were woven together, and this idea that the city has its own essence and that's a feminine, very strong feminine energy and a myst there's a myst mystique there to that. I think it's a subject I've always been interested in is exploring going beyond cognition, you know, the, the ego's cognition, and moving into much more, uh, I guess, essentially based gathering of information where it's it's intuitive and. Um, some of these things just kind of grow out of an intuition. I couldn't really break it all down. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a, um, a quantum <laughs> physics uh, scientist or anything like that. So, um, but there was definitely picking up on the energy and the essences of cities. And also, I guess, cinema, trying to create things that were visceral, visually, create visual, the, your, visual the, your visual cortex would be start vibrating with this music as well. And maybe some of the words and the phrases would, would, would bring up certain images. But I, I guess you could, link, if you were, you know, clever enough, you could sit back and link a lot of the lines to things that are happening politically and social politically right now in, in the world. I mean, the idea of Sonic Temple, Sonic Temple was, for me, was always the idea that, yes, it's entertainment. Yes, it's entertainment. You pay, you pay for a ticket, you go through the door, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a moment when all that kind of fades away, when, when you hit the stage and you can get this sense, this essence of an anticipation from an audience and you you got that there's an opportunity to do something together that night and it's kind of ritual space and I, sometimes i say to the audience like what have you got to say get it out right now here's your opportunity here's your opportunity to be unfiltered and to let it go and everybody's safe everybody is welcome in this space we take care of each other in, in our space i always want to reiterate that our concerts are open to everyone any walk of life we don't segregate in that way so um i think that's kind of woven through the songs wake up time for freedom it's just that that's like a, a buddhist tenant you know wake up a dream you know the form is formless formlessness is form you know a dream within a dream um i was picking up more buddhist texts 
um, through the Beats, through Alan Watts, through Timothy Leary, through Ginsburg, through the you know Burroughs, through Joseph Campbell, Hero of a Thousand Faces, the interviews he did with Bill Moyer, you know, the myth of freedom, Trogim uh, Trompa Rinpoche. It was all this incredible esoteric knowledge that was coming through, especially on public television. You know, these great interviews with Bill Moyers and, and just becoming more interested in the architects of the subculture. Like when you actually go like, yeah, you have your very commercial end with your Woodstocks and all that kind of thing. But you actually look at the, the individuals who kind of fired this all up. You know, it's like, why do hippies have long hair? Everyone's like, well, you know, they, they were like, you know, influenced by Native Americans and that kind of thing. Yes, they were. But one of the big reasons that hippies had long hair is because those dignitaries from Cuba after the revolution went to Berkeley and they were photographed in Life magazine. I think it was like Camilla Cienfuegos and might have been Che Guevara. They had long hair and beard and everyone was like, what? They look stunning. you know. And that was a massive picture in life. And then all of a sudden people start to affect that look on the Berkeley campus, you know, the long hair look and the beard and the beatnik kind of thing. And then that just evolved. It just became a cultural trend. And, um, you know, so there's so many tributaries and points of, you know, entry points. And I'd like to think that some of those have woven through into, into, our, into our songs. And there are layers and there are texts. It was intended, there, there was an intention to try and create something that had layers that could be peeled away. That you could, there's, there's room for discovery in the music, you know. Not all of it. Some of it was just pretty blatantly street fight. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was to create, a, a, you know, an immediate adrenal response. But um, I think a great amount of travel and thought and consideration went into it and um, we didn't always get it right I mean it's not Sonic Temple's imperfect imperfect in many ways it has many imperfections but it is what it is and you know there it is the Sonic Polaroid of cult circa 88 through 91 that record you know it's created its own space outside of us that people have you know so many people I've met our shows come up and they they share what an important record it was for them in their lives and that it still evokes certain moods and sentiments when they put it on. It's absolutely fascinating to hear all of these, as as you said at the beginning of the interview, you wanted to talk about the influences and, and to hear how many different types of influences all went in to make this record sound what it did. I mean, it's um, to me, it's just, you know, at, at its base level, it's a great rock record, but to hear how deep everything goes... Is really amazing. No, not, you know, even, even people like, you know, fucking Brian Jones, you know, when he went to Morocco and the uh, master musicians of Jujuku, you know, things like that. And then woven into the beats of Burroughs and woven into like Dyson and Paul Bowles and the literary crossovers and, the, you know, there was just so many. Brian Jones was always a very important figure to me. I always felt that he was, if he'd continued, he would have made some magnificent work. Magnificent, you know. Pink Floyd were a band that I actually saw in 1975, and they were always kind of constantly around. And I never thought of them as an influence, but they've actually been a major part of my life. You know, when I go, when I listen to it, I think, how many times have I sat down and listened to Dark Side of the Moon or Animals? I don't know, thousands perhaps. You know, countless. Wish you were here. I mean, and you know, At My Heart Mother, so it's just incredible. And all that goes has has found its way through, albeit you know, through our dilettante fingers. <laughs> You know, um, you know, we came out of punk rock. What, what can we say? I didn't go to a music conservatory. I was self-taught, and uh, you know, very much like Tom Sachs as an artist. <laughs> we throw this together, and it, it somehow it, it, it manages to to create. A, you know, um, it connects in some ways, and it's not for everybody, and I wouldn't expect it to be. But um, hopefully, hopefully, this tour. I mean, it's, it's been an incredible response because it's selling out. We, 
we did the Greek, which was, you know, we did nearly 6,000, six I think, with the Greek, sold that out. The UK tour selling out, the Canadian tour sold out, which for us, we're kind of going, what? What? <laughs> I mean, we were doing pretty good before. It was like, you know, we were doing, we were doing good. We were doing like probably 90% across the board uh, in terms of, you know, packing venues out. But this tour has been, I think because we set it up as a Sonic Temple, not the Sonic Temple, a Sonic Temple, meaning a Sonic Temple is this place. It's an idea. It's, it requires your participation as much as our performance. Otherwise, it's, it's, not, it's not just going to come. It's not going to come off. You know, it just won't come off. So and then it's like I'm just viewing it as like a Sonic Temple, an evening with the cult revealing the DNA of their influences or something like that. It's exciting. I, I, I do want to see one of these shows. I need to come to the if you UK. really want to see it, if you really want to see it. The Greek was excellent. But I think that if you really want to see Sonic Temple in its incontextual environment, London Hammersmith Apollo, as it's called now, mm-hmm. it used to be called the Hammersmith Odeon, where Bowie did Spiders on Mars and Ziggy Stardust, the last concert was done there. You know, that's the place to see it because that venue particularly was a venue that was very important for Billy and I. We used to go out a lot when we first got together and we'd go see everybody from Johnny Thunders to Iggy Pop to... I mean, you know, Susan the Banshees um, at the Hammersmith Apollo. Incredible venue, incredible venue. And um, when is so that show? It's like October the twenty fifth or something oh, like that. That's October totally doable. Yeah, uh, that'll be a good one. But there's never there's never any guarantees, you know. Right. I mean, I remember walking out on the Hammersmith Odeon one show I did not that long ago, and I ran out stage and my pants ripped open. <laughs> I was like, ah. Oh, Shit, you're kidding me. Just into the first song, I actually literally had to run off the stage and find another pair of trousers. And the only trousers I had, other than my stage pants, at the time I could find were like a pair of like, you know, drop crotch sweatpants. And I ran out and people were like, what is he wearing? You know, and people actually commented like, he looked terrible. He was like dressed in his casual clothes. And it's like, needless did they know that my ass was hanging out. Um, But that that really affected the show, not having the right trousers. Uh, Yeah, Yeah. that's... You gotta have to write sure. trousers. Quick, quick note cool. here that I just noticed. By the way, uh, the doors because we talked about them so much. Uh, a little side note to the interview yeah. here. Uh, today is the 50th anniversary of the Soft Parade. Fantastic. Yes, the monk bought lunch. <laughs> the great line. The yeah. great, great line. I uh, said, so "What an incredible line! The best what an part. amazing line! The, the monk best. bought lunch. Yeah. What? That's <laughs> oh, an incredible record." Best part of the trip. Uh, Best Ian, part of the trip. Yeah, this has been so much fun. Uh, cool. Thank you so cool, so Kyle. much for taking the moment uh, time today. Thank you, sir. All right, we'll see you around. Okay, we'll see you down the road somewhere. All yeah, right, take care. Take care. Bye. All right, bye bye. My thanks to Ian Asbury of the Cults, talking about that uh, 30th anniversary of Sonic Temple. Just a dream interview right there. I tell you what. Hey, before you get out of here, if you haven't already subscribed, please hit that subscribe button. Uh, Again, you can do it anywhere you get your favorite podcast. That includes iTunes and Apple Podcasts and Spotify, as well as YouTube. You can subscribe over there if that's more your style. And after that, WFPK.org is where you can find me Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern for the Kyle Meredith with radio show. I play new songs, anniversary spins, throw some music news in, and, of course, clips from these interviews as well. It's WFPK.org. Consequenceofsound.net has your music and film news. You can also find me at Twitter, at Kyle Meredith, and Facebook, slash Kyle Meredith. And that does it for another edition of Kyle Meredith. I'll see you next time. Consequence Podcast Network. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.